We're turning again in the scriptures, Matthew 16, verse 16, uh, one of the proof texts of a confession. And here Peter makes a, <coughs> he makes a confession. And he says, Matthew 16, verse 16, And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. And last week we considered creeds and confessions. J.N.D. Kelly said, For hundreds of years Christians have been accustomed to understand by the word creed a fixed formula summarizing the essential articles of their religion and enjoying the sanction of ecclesiastical authority. And so we considered last week the creeds and confessions have a biblical foundation. And we considered a number of points. Uh, we considered that scripture teaches us to instruct future generations. It teaches us to hear and hearken to the word of God. It shows us that the apostle Paul wrote confessional statements. It teaches us that the faith and the truth have been delivered to the church. And therefore the church has a duty and it has a responsibility to teach the truth of God. And having that truth systematized in a confession of faith is beneficial to uh, the work of Christ's church. Uh, John Fesco summarized some of the benefits of creeds and confessions. And he gave three points. He said there could be more. He said that they distinguish orthodoxy uh, from error. They create boundaries that foster a diversified orthodoxy. And they codify the church's historic witness. And it is important to distinguish the truth from error. Uh, we see that when we come to the Council of Nicaea. Uh, they distinguished the biblical truth of Christ, of Christ's deity, uh, from Arianism. That taught errors concerning the deity of the Saviour. And hence we have the Nicene Creed that came out of that council. And uh, we see there, I guess, a great pattern uh, for the importance of creeds and the development of creeds within the church. There was an issue that arose. There was heresy arose. And what happened? The church met. They discussed that. And they formulated a creed to outline their position regarding that particular error and the truth that countered that error. The same is true when we think of Arminianism. Uh, Jacobus Arminius, his followers, uh, were teaching that which was believed to be contrary to the word of God. It came to the Synod of Dort. And there at the Synod of Dort, uh, they discussed and they debated. There was an interesting uh, event uh, took place. We'll maybe mention that either this week or next week, depending on how far we get. Uh, but that event shows how zealous some individuals were for the truth of God. And there at the Synod of Dort, they set out uh, the five points that we would refer today as the five points of Calvinism or the doctrines of grace that stand against the five points of the Remonstrants or those who were setting out the doctrines of Arminius. And so the church... Uh, was faced with error. The church had a council, a synod, a meeting to deal with it, and the church produced a creed or confession of faith to set out the truth of the scriptures. 
And so that is common in Christianity. The historic witness, the historic belief of the church is codified. And so we come today to consider that creeds and confessions systematize biblical truth. Now we did consider some of this in Reformation Sunday. We will be mentioning other things and adding to this as well. Uh, but it is important for us to understand that not only do creeds and confessions have a biblical foundation, but the whole purpose is to systematize biblical truth, to set it out so we can easily understand it. And church history shows the need for this. In a world where false doctrine abounds, there is a necessity for clarity concerning the truth of God. And so when we think of, for example, the doctrine of sin, how do we define and explain the doctrine of sin? If someone came in here and they said, I don't understand what sin is. I don't understand how sin affects and how sin can be defined as a teaching. Well, we would go through Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and how they sinned against God. We would go to Ezekiel 20, uh, where it says, the soul that sinneth it shall die, Ezekiel 18 actually. We would go to God's standard and uh, consider that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We would consider Romans 5 and 12 and sin entering into the world. We would consider Romans 6.23 for the wages of sin is death and outline what sin is and the destructive power of sin. And we move through the scriptures and we understand that truth. But a creed and a confession takes the topic of sin and then it takes the teaching of scripture and systematizes it or summarizes it in a format that is organized and something that can often be remembered. And so the confession of faith in the Shorter Catechism tells us, did our first parents continue in the estate wherein they were created? And the answer is given, our first parents, being left to the freedom of their own will, fell from the estate wherein they were created by sinning against God. And so there's a statement there regarding theology, a statement there regarding the history of the world as well. And so uh, we find in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3, Paul says, But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And what is happening here is that the apostle said that the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. Sin came into the world then from our first parents, and this is used as a proof text for the catechism telling us what happened. What happened? We can think of sin. What is sin? And the Shorter Catechism says, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the, the law of God. And First John 3 verse 4 tells us, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And so the word of God says sin is the transgression of the law. And so the catechism then takes the question, what is sin? It says sin is any want of conformity unto, so we're not conforming to God's law. But that last phrase is taken directly from scripture. It is a transgression of the law of God, a breaking of his law. And so the catechism moves through and it asks the question, then into what estate did the fall bring mankind? The fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us of that, of how uh, the 
church at Ephesus, those believers were in darkness and they were dead in their trespasses and in their sins. And so uh, the Westminster Divines take those verses in Ephesians 2, uh, verses 1 through to 3, and use that to emphasize that the fall brought mankind into a state of sin and misery. This is what the fall has done. Man is dead in his trespasses and sins. Man is following after the evil one. And so it continues and explains what sin teaches concerning the scriptures. And that is beneficial to us. It's beneficial to our children. Why? Because the children are taught the catechism. The shorter catechism, when they reach a certain age in our Sunday school, they learn the shorter catechism. They learn these truths. And these truths are taught to them because it is fundamental. And so the truth is systematized and it is taught. And a systematized dealing with the subject of sin enables us to understand the wide scope of scriptural teaching on this doctrine. It helps us in understanding the word of God. Another example is the Westminster Confession of Faith on Holy Scripture. And uh, that is chapter 1 of the Confession. It deals with revelation, the Lord revealing himself. It deals with what we believe to be the Word of God, the 66 books. Uh, the section 3 deals with the books commonly called the Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, a new part of the canon of Scripture. Uh, the fourth section deals with the authority of Scripture. And that it is to be believed and obeyed. And there are scripture texts there. All scripture is given by inspiration of God is one of them. And so because God's word is inspired by him and given by him, it has authority. And it needs to be obeyed. And it needs to be believed. And moving down to section 6, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory. Man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. And nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving, and, uh, for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the word and there are numerous uh, proof texts for that and proof text for example second timothy 3 15 16 17 all scripture is given by inspiration of god but it makes us wise unto salvation and the verse 17 if we turn to it uh, just for a moment second timothy 3 uh, verse 17 And it says that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And so the counsel of God in Scripture is given that man may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. It's given to teach us and to instruct us. And so the confession of faith goes on. It says the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no, no other but the Holy Spirit speaking 
in Scripture and uh, how, how true that is. And the Westminster Divines bring that out and they use Ephesians 2 verse 20 saying that we are built, uh, to paraphrase the start of that verse, and are built, we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And how do we understand that? We understand that Christ and his word through the prophets and through the apostles is instructing us and therefore that is the final authority. The final authority. And so the confession takes what we believe the word of God teaches and clearly summarizes it for our learning, for our edification, for our souls to be blessed and taught regarding these things. And of course, if you were, for example, to do a study of what Scripture teaches about itself, you started at Genesis and moved through the Word of God, it would take you some time, just yourself, in a little cocoon, as we say, with no interference from the outside world, to move through the Word of God and find all these truths. And of course, some you may miss yourself, some you may find and understand uh, but what we have in the confession of godly men who take what the church has historically believed these were not new truths at the time of the puritan period the time of the westminster assembly these were not new truths that they developed from scripture these were truths that had been historically believed corrupted by the roman catholic church but historically believed by many churches and historically believed by the early church, and they took these teachings and they put them together and systematized them. And there we have uh, the confession of faith. Can the confession make mistakes? Can it contain errors? Yes, it can. Can the word of God? No. And so the word of God is our final authority. Uh, but inasmuch as the confession accurately and correctly reflects the word of God it systematizes that truth and it is a blessing for us and so let us not be like many who will say uh, that they have uh, no need for confessions or no need for creeds they have uh, the bible itself uh, but let us see the benefit of creeds and confessions and then we see as well uh, that creeds and confessions warmly express our faith they warmly express our faith there are many who say no creed for christ no creed but christ but one writer said that a creedless church can not long exist in other words there needs to be that definition of faith there needs to be something that is meaningful something that gives us purpose something that can be defined and when we think of the heidelberg catechism uh, the first question asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is given that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. And so that answer continues, and how blessed it is. Thrilling our hearts and our souls, reminding us who we are. Our only comfort in life and death. And how true that is. And if I were to ask you that question. What is your only comfort in life and death? I'm asking you a personal question. And you give the answer that I am not my own. 
but I belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior. What are you giving back? A personal answer. And so there is this personal aspect of this particular catechism. And that's something I noted some time ago. I remember being here in 2017, and I was talking to the Reverend Colliger, and he was emphasizing to me he'd been, I think he'd been studying the Heidelberg Catechism, and he had been blessed by it, and blessed by really uh, the aspects seen in it as what we have just said regarding uh, what is your only comfort in life and death. And he emphasized this catechism and emphasized the importance of it and the personal aspect of it and the blessing that it is and how true uh, that is. It is a tender-hearted and personal catechism and it leads us closer to the Lord and all the truths in our confessions and in our creeds are not mere cold theological statements. They can't be because they express the truth of God. And the truth of God is not dry and cold to our hearts, but it should be warm and embracing and bring us closer to the Lord. So there is a personal aspect to these creeds and confessions that is warm-hearted and something that blesses us when we think of the shorter catechism what is man's chief end man's chief end is to glorify god and to enjoy him forever and if we approach that scripturally if we approach that the way we ought to as believers what do we see we see our duty to glorify god it's a glorious thing it's a glorious thing for the redeemed sinner to glorify his god something that should thrill us and challenge our hearts that in all that we do, we seek to bring glory to the one who gave himself for us. It brings us closer to the Lord. The very first question of the Westminster Shorty Catechism brings us closer to the Lord. It has to. If we are true believers, if we truly love the Lord, then realizing and understanding that our chief end in life is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, that changes us. It has to. It has to. It's a biblical statement. Whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. And so the very first verse of that catechism emphasizes to us what our duty is in, in that catechism and in reading and studying that catechism, but in every aspect of life. It brings us closer. And so creeds and confessions are not dry, cold documents but the documents that express the truth of God to our hearts and should bring us closer to him. This brings us to our next thought. Creeds and confessions encourage piety. They encourage piety. They encourage godliness. A pious man is a godly man. And they encourage an understanding of the truth of God that ought to bring us closer to the Lord. During the Synod of Dort, it is said that one delegate was so angered by what was said by another delegate. Of course, they were dealing with what we refer to today as Calvinism or the doctrines of grace. And in the background of Dort, that was what the church had always taught and believed. But the Arminians had come with their doctrines and there was a, a great debate and division. And it's a bit like today if you were to go to as someone who is an Arminian or put a strong Calvinist and a strong Arminian into the same room, 
Uh, or we could take someone who uh, believes in that tongues have ceased and put someone in there who strongly believes that tongues are biblical and they practice. You lock them in a room or you take perhaps uh, two men who have different views about eschatology and they're very strong and zealous in those views and they know what they believe. You lock them in a room. What's going to happen? There's going to be a little bit of division, a little bit of debate. And at the Synod of Door, it got heated uh, because one delegate was so angered that he challenged another delegate to a duel to the death. And uh, I'm not sure uh, whether that actually happened or not in the sense of the duel, but the challenge certainly uh, was issued. And there are disagreements over the compilation of creeds and confessions as men care for the truth. They are zealous about defending it. They are zealous about proclaiming it. And uh, there will be debates and divisions as Creeds and confessions are compiled because of the different views that we have. However, they ground us in understanding the truth of Scripture. And they ground us in living out that truth, building upon what I said about our duty to glorify God. And the Westminster Catechisms on the Ten Commandments are a prime example of this. Not merely just telling us the, the doctrine, the deep doctrine, the doctrine uh, of justification or the doctrine of sanctification or adoption or perhaps telling us about the doctrines of uh, God and his attributes. These things are all warm-hearted in themselves. Uh, but the Ten Commandments particularly are very practical to us and encourage piety and encourage godliness. The first commandment is thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the very first question about that is what are the duties required in the first commandment? The duties required in the first commandment are the knowing and acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify him accordingly by thinking, and this is the larger catechism, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, fearing of him, believing him, trusting, hoping, delighting, rejoicing in him, being zealous for him, calling upon him, giving all praise and thanks and yielding all obedience and submission to him with the whole man, being careful in all things to please him and sorrowful when in anything he is offended and walking humbly with him. It was called by the right name, the larger catechism. Uh, there's quite uh, an amount of things there. And that's just one question one commandment what is required and there's this great list of what we are required to do and so the commandment is taken thou shalt have no other gods before me and the Westminster divines ask the question well what duties is God requiring of us here what does that mean practically what should we be doing in light of this commandment and of course it encourages piety and godliness knowing and acknowledging God to be the only true God and our God, and to worship and glorify him accordingly by thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, etc. And there's so much there for us to think upon, for us to consider. If I told you that homework for adult Sunday school this week was to go home, read the larger catechism on the first commandment, to make comments upon every single 
direction given here and how you could apply that to your life and how you could honor God, adore God, love God, desire God, fear God, believe him, trust him, hope, delight, rejoice in him, being zealous for him. And you explain what that means and what you could do to fulfill that within your life. You, you would think, oh, that's maybe easy. You'll go home and you'll realize that uh, the pastor has maybe given you a 10,000 word essay for next week. There's so much here, so much here. And that's only the first question that goes on. What are the sins forbidden in the first commandment? The sins forbidden in the first commandment are atheism. In denying or not having a God, idolatry, and having or worshipping more gods than one, or any with or instead of the true God, the not having and avouching him for God and our God, the omission or neglect of anything due to him. We may not be atheists, but we may not have idols either. We may deal with that and seek not to have idols in our lives. But there's so much flowing from this commandment that the divines bring out in this creed, confession, catechism, that it gives us much thought, the omission or neglect of anything due to him. And so we pray for God to bless in a particular way. Maybe there's a difficulty at work, there's a pressing issue, there's something important that needs to be done. We seek the Lord, we ask him for his help in resolving this. I can think of myself, we could pray that the heat gets resolved today and I go home and the house is 23 degrees and I go about my business and I omit something. I neglect to thank the Lord for fixing this because it means not only can I enjoy the normal temperature but it gives, it gives me a warm home so that I'll be able to work and look over the sermon this evening and work tomorrow in warmth something to thank God for, but it can be omitted, something so simple like that. Forgetfulness, misapprehensions, false opinions, profaneness, self-love, self-seeking, the setting of our mind, will, or affections upon other things, misbelief, distrust, despair, hardness of heart, pride, carnal security, trusting in lawful means, using unlawful means, carnal delights and joys, and I'm skipping through several things here, and it goes on and on and on. Discontent and impatient at his dispensions, charging him foolishly for the evils he afflicts on us, ascribing the praise of any good we either are, have, or can do to fortune, idols, ourselves, or any other creature. How often do we hear People speak about the good that comes their way. They had good fortune or they had good luck when in reality it was the grace of God. And as believers, we're not to do these things. And the catechism then reminds us of all the sins that come out of that commandment of not putting God first in our lives that we ought to do. And so not only do we have the homework of going through all those, all those things, those duties. But we have the homework of considering the sins and how we sin against God. There's so much there. It's not really homework. But you get the idea. There's so much there. Would, 
take you all week, if not more, to go through everything and consider. And what does this do? It brings us closer to God and it encourages us in godliness. Uh, because to do these things against the name of God is sin. But as we examine ourselves and we look at these things, and this is just one of the catechisms, we can move forward to the fourth commandment. And the fourth commandment is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. And that's the introduction to the fourth commandment. And the Westminster Divines asked the question, what is required in the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment requireth of all men the sanctifying or keeping holy to God such set times as he hath appointed in his word, expressly one whole day in seven, which was the seventh from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ and the first day of the week ever since, and so to continue to the end of the world, which is the Christian Sabbath and in the New Testament called the Lord's Day. And so it sets out, there's a duty here to keep this particular day. There's a doctrine. And then it asks the question, how is the Sabbath or the Lord's Day to be sanctified? How are we to keep it? By holy resting all the day. Not only from such works as are at all times sinful, but even from such worldly employments and recreations as are on other days lawful. And making it our delight to spend the whole time, except so much of it as is to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy, in the public and private exercises of God's worship. And to that end, we are to prepare our hearts and with such foresight, diligence, and moderation to dispose and seasonably dispatch our worldly business that we may be the more free and fit for the duties of that day. And so there are many scriptural proofs given, and we won't go through those, but proving this from the word of God, systematizing the truth of God, that we would be taught, that we would be pious. Thomas Watson the Puritan Divine has a book on the Ten Commandments. He bases it on the Shorter Catechism, deals with all these issues to the instruction and to the edification of the, the people of God. They ask the question again, what is the Eighth Commandment? Thou shalt not steal. And the duties required in the Eighth Commandment are truth, faithfulness, and justice, and contracts, and commerce between man and man. A provident care and study to summarize, to get, keep, use and dispose these things which are necessary and convenient for the sustenance of our nature and suitable to our condition. And by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve and further the wealth and outward estate of others as well as our own. All that comes under thou shalt not steal and the creed, confession, catechism teaches us this. And reminds us what God's word teaches on these things. That we would be encouraged to live godly lives. To procure, preserve and further the wealth and outward estate of others as well as our own. And we know thou shalt not steal. That applies to us. We're not to steal. And we're to further our estate and our wealth by not stealing. And so if I want to further my wealth, I don't go and put a mask on and go to the bank and rob the bank. I do it through legitimate work. If I was to preserve and further the wealth and outward estate of others, what does that mean? Well, I don't steal from them. I pay my rent. I do uh, my duty toward them in light of God's word, in light of the law of the land. I don't seek to swindle them 
or to engage in some sort of risky business endeavor that I may know may absolutely fail, and not only would I lose everything or maybe guard myself against losing everything, but they would be the fall person. They would lose everything. And so we need to take care. And that is what is one of our duties in the Eighth Commandment. And of course, the sins forbidden. Besides the neglect of the duties required of theft, robbery, man-stealing, receiving anything that is stolen. And so if I said, well, brother, I've got a nice new top-of-the-range iPad for you, and I gave it to you, you later found out that it was stolen, well, you should be reporting that, getting rid of that stolen item. The Word of God teaches, and the Shorter Catechism implies that, that we're not to receive things that are stolen. And so we could, we could go on and on about this. I don't mean that in a negative sense. And the Catechism goes on and on about this. I don't mean that in a negative sense either. Uh, there are good things for us to pause and to consider. And so we see in a small way, at least, that creeds and confessions and catechisms encourage us in godliness. They show us what God's standard of godliness is. And that is a blessing and that is a benefit to the church of Christ. And so we'll pause there this morning. Uh, we have some other things uh, to say and we'll give a summary perhaps next week of creeds and confessions, well-known creeds and confessions within the church. And so next week I'll have the notes of today as well as the notes for next week all sorted and all uh, ready to go. But may the Lord bless uh, this just consideration of some of the benefits of creeds and confessions. Let us pray. Our eternal God and our loving Father in heaven, we thank thee uh, for thy church. We thank thee for creeds and confessions. We realize they're subordinate to scripture. But we thank thee for the blessing they are to the church in as far as they reflect the teaching of Scripture. We thank thee, O God, that they can encourage us in learning truth and encourage us in godliness. May we desire godliness, to exercise ourselves unto godliness. And we pray, Father, that thou would teach us and instruct us. We thank thee for the Puritans who put together our confession of faith and our catechisms and how they were concerned with the glory of God and concerned with living for thee and concerned with godliness. How, Father, many of them, and we're considering this in the men's breakfast, wrote books about godliness, trying to encourage the people of God to be godly. And we rejoice that we have been called to be godly. And we pray that thou would enable us to do so Enable us to live for thee and to glorify thy name in all that we do. Father, bless us now. Bless the services to follow. May we glorify thee in all things we ask for Christ's sake. Amen.